The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 133 is, what is love? Properly understood. And we read The Art of Loving from Eric Fromm from 1956. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintzmeyer in the Mobile in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin thinking that the question for the episode should have been stated more like, What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? <laughs> That'll go great with our background music. This is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, I can't really follow that. Uh, this is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is our special Valentine's Day episode. Or a pair of episodes, or whatever your perspective is on that. Yeah, why aren't we out with our girlfriends or wives, or girlfriends and wives? My wife's been gone for two weeks. <laughs> what? <laughs> she's she's taking care of her sister who just had cardiac surgery, and her oh. mom who just had back surgery. Well, her love shown toward her family will surely resonate as love toward you. Exactly. Her love for her sister is evidence of her ability to love you, Dylan. Uh, oh, Mark just said that. Yeah, but I said it's better. <laughs> Except he included the whole family. <laughs> applied from. That's what this podcast is going to be, a course in applied Applied from, from what to what? <laughs> <laughs> ah! Oh, I see what you did there. Do we want to give some ground rules? We haven't done that in a while. Do we pay attention to them and does anybody else anymore? They're good guiding principles. All right, you can guess how long I've had this written here based on the joke. Uh, number one. <laughs> Try not to assume our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say, you would know what I'm talking about if you'd only read Aristotle's history of that time that dog bit Xenophon right in his generative function. <laughs> and number three, we'll be rigorous and exact in all that we say unless doing otherwise would be potentially more entertaining. All right, on to the love. Let's say why we uh, chose this reading so I can feel a little less guilty about it. Well, we chose this because we were going to have a special celebrity guest who wanted us to cover love, but then he was just never available. So we just decided it was Valentine's and we would do it. He had suggested a book that was more like a self-help book, and we wanted to do something a little bit more in line with what we usually do. So we sort of compromised. And this Eric Fromm book is actually written for a popular audience and yeah, it's on love, so it was sort of hit the sweet spot there. But its parent, its closest philosophical neighbor in the things that we have done here is Freud's civilization and its discontents, I think, in that he's a psychoanalyst and he's giving, here's the ills of society. Yeah, I think, well, also, you know, it made me think of Rousseau or any one of these critics of society, these essayists who are, have lots of things to say about how 
phony our lives are because of capitalism men or other things. But yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things with Fromm is he's highly critical of Freud and he's he's also classified as part of the Frankfurt School. He studied with Weber and with Jaspers. Did we ever figure out how to pronounce that? That is correct. You just did it right. Jaspers. And so, yeah, so there's a social theory element here, which is one that's heavily influenced by Marx, of course, that stands into, in conflict with the Freudian or Nietzschean emphasis on, on instinct and the, the primacy of instinct. So, so he sort of put those two together and he wrote a lot of popular books for wide audiences. And I think Art of Loving was published in 1956 and it was a big hit, a bestseller translated into a lot of languages. And it does read a lot like a self-help book much more like a self-help book than it does like one of the kinds of things we're used to reading despite the influence of critical theory and Freud. Well, despite his kind of ridiculing self-help books as giving prescriptions in the last <laughs> yeah, chapter, he gets around to giving his positive guidance. Well, he's been hinting at it the whole time, saying some general things about what it is to love. Yeah. But mostly it's a critique. It's negative. Yeah. Don't love the modern way. It's not about modern love, man. Walks beside me. Everyone's got Bowie on the mind. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to kind of sum up what the central lesson here is? I can certainly try that it's that love is an art. Is it an activity? It is something that you do not fall in. It is not something that requires a certain special chemistry that then we are more or less victims of. But it is something that you choose. It's something that is an orientation. It's something that requires practice and it requires building a virtuous character. Yeah, love doesn't happen to you. You do love. The way most of us, at least according to him, think of love as we think of it as this passive thing. We think of it as something that happens to us, right? We go out and we look for the right person, this person who for that they're made for us and they're going to elicit in us all these loving feelings, at least with regard to erotic love, right? He's really, he's... You've got the love feeling. Wait, how did you... How did the... Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> you said elicit all these loving feelings. <laughs> oh. Holy crap, I mean... I hope you guys have picked up on the theme for this evening. <laughs> but yeah, so no, he is treating more broadly, you know, he's treating of love in general, but specifically when it comes to erotic love, there's this idea, you know, this idea of our passivity and yeah, he wants to claim it's as Mark said, a more of a decision and something that's an art in the sense that you can be disciplined at, that you can practice. And uh, that's some, something that's not as subject to caprice as most people's erotic love lives are, right? Falling in love, having that infatuation last for two years, and then being bored or sick of the person and moving on to try and recapture that feeling. So that's the kind of model of love he's objecting to, of erotic love. But it's all related in the end. So Yeah. And you say the phrase erotic love and he basically doesn't talk about that at all, especially in the end in his conclusions about, you know, the activity of loving. We'll yeah. say more about that because he talks a lot about people's what I meant by erotic. I mean, yeah, say what you mean. Well, I guess he talks a lot about disposition and the kind of attitude and interaction that people have in love and emotional content. I mean, it's not about the pleasuring of erotic love. It's not like a, a condensed Kama Sutra or something like that, oh. right? In terms of the the art of erotic love. Right. You know, and yeah. I, I know that you mean it in a romantic or... Yeah, romantic, romantic would have been a better word. Yeah, romantic. He means the love between two adults and two individuals. That's really all that it's meant to signify. Two biological adults, that is. Because <laughs> they're probably emotional children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sorry, two biological... As opposed to... Well, listen, listen. Sorry, you're right. It's to be contrasted with brotherly love, motherly love fatherly love. 
the idea that two people come together in an intimate relationship and erotic is just simply intended to indicate that it's beyond something familial or fraternal. Well, I guess one of the reasons why I get the term was throwing me for a loop a little bit is that he goes in the middle in the theory of love, classifying love and love as the answer to the problem of human existence, which is sort of a philosophical position about it. And then the canonical love between a parent and child, and then the different forms of love, just that you enunciated brotherly love, motherly love, exotic love, self-love, love of God. And exotic love? Yep. No, there's no exotic love. That's what's in mind. I think you mean erotic love. Did it actually say exotic love? Love of the strange? Well, yeah. that would be a really interesting typo. Where did you see that? Oh, you know what? It is a typo. <laughs> because <laughs> it's funny because I'm just looking at the table of contents. I have the 50th anniversary edition. And in the table of contents, it says exotic love. And then I tr- and then it says erotic love. Published by Rinky Dink Press. <laughs> oh, I have the same typo. Yeah. They're rinky-dink, Harper Perennial, Modern Classics. All right, hold on. Let me check. Maybe I glossed it in my version. Why would they keep reprinting this this typo? That's amazing. <laughs> so this is not about the need for strange. Where are you looking? I have a, like a recent printing of this, but they're just reprinting the same typo. Yeah, because if you go to the page where the chapter begins on page 49, the title of the section is Erotic Love. It is about erotic love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to respond to Dylan's initial point about this not being the Kama Sutra, the solution to that is he thinks, as he says, just after World War I, people thought that love was founded on just having a good sex life. And if you could learn sexual technique, then that would provide a solid biological, immediate animal foundation. And then everything else can work itself out. All the who's going to do the chores or whatever, what the rest of the dynamics are. If you've got a solid sexual foundation, then that'll work itself out. And uh, he seems to think that that's entirely backwards, that in fact, he sees in his clinical practice that people have trouble with impotence, with frigidity, that the problem is their fundamental inability to be intimate to, it's the problem that he's addressing in the whole book, that they're somehow inadequate human beings. They don't love themselves enough. They can't love anything. And so once they got the the problem of love solved, then sex will take care of itself. And he doesn't spell this out, but the idea is that part of the healthy kind of love that he's recommending is being sensitive and listening and paying attention and really concentrating and focusing. And so if you enter your love den with that sort of mode, you're going to have some good communication with your significant other and figure out each other biologically. So he doesn't have to spell it out. Your heterosexual other, we might add. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a, this is 1958. Yeah, I, I have to say I was taken aback by that. I was like cruising along and then, yeah, homosexual relations are just a, a sign of psychological disturbance. Yeah. That wasn't Freud's view, by the way. No, so. I wasn't blaming Freud. I, I'm total one up blaming Fromm here. Freud defended homosexuality. And for Freud, we are all male and female. And, all, and Fromm actually picks up on that theme. So there's a footnote in Ego and the Id where he says something like every sexual relation is between four people which is also something Woody Allen might have said, I think. Uh, so anyway, so I just wanted to point that out. So when we talk about masculine and feminine, as he does here, it's not necessarily, he does make the same caveat that he's talking about masculine and feminine principles and things like that. But yeah. Well, one of the things that he points out, Mark, to go back even further beyond the First or Second World War is he talks about the notion that our modern idea that you can fall in love that love is somehow something that happens to you as if it's a passive activity was not shared even as recent as pre-Victorian times, where the idea was that you were married by convention and then over time, love took root. 
You had to learn to love somebody you were partnered with. And he thinks that that's a shift from the idea of love as a practice and an art to a misguided focus on the object of love. That what's important is that if you find the right thing to love, everything falls into place as opposed to whatever you're given, you have to work with and you have to practice. And essentially, there's an art to loving whatever it is in front of you as opposed to magically falling in love with the right object. Yeah, there's this tension too between, there's this idea that Fromm advocates that the grounds of you actually loving someone erotically as a sexual partner is these non-sexual types of love, including love of humanity. And those two things are obviously in tension with each other because even if you reject this idea of being passive in your erotic love of a particular person, there's usually something about that particular individual, right, that does it for you unless you're really committed to the idea of arranged marriages and being committed to someone you don't even know. So there's, there is a middle ground, I think, between having some choice in love object, but also treating your love towards that person as a kind of commitment, which isn't subject to whim or to loss of infatuation and things like that. In other words, I'm saying there's the whole arranged marriage thing, which he seems to have good things to say about at the beginning. And then there's the modern love of finding the person who completes you. But then there's this middle ground, which I think in the end, he sort of is advocating. Right. He says certain people are going to have qualities that are going to be more what we need in having this kind of love. I was trying to find the quote. Yeah. He says that in one place because it's an obvious question to ask when someone speaks highly of arranged marriages. <laughs> well, is that what you're advocating? Is that what we, uh, what we should go back to? If love really is an act of will, is it really the case that we can just choose any partner and make that work? He probably would agree that you can't choose any partner, but that the notion that it isn't significantly up to you to make it happen is wrong, right? Here, I found it on page 56 to 57. Whether the marriage was arranged by others or the result of individual choice, once the marriage is concluded, the act of will should guarantee the continuation of love. However, this view seems to neglect the paradoxical character of human nature and of erotic love. We are all one, yet every one of us is a unique, unduplicable entity. In our relationships to others, the same paradox is repeated. In as much as we are all one, we can love everybody in the same way, in the sense of brotherly love. But in as much as we are all different, erotic love requires certain specific, highly individual elements which exist between some people, but not between all. So what else do we want to say about this? <laughs> let's just start going through the text. Yeah, let's just start going through the way he begins is with this idea of what love is meant to remedy, right? Which is alienation and separateness. And Well, that's section two, the theory of love, the, the answer to the problem of human existence. Part one is just, we've already emphasized that in today's society, modern happiness is based on consumerism. And despite this deep-seated craving for love we all had, other things are considered more important and worthy of energy, success, prestige, money, power. But yet... An art requires focusing all your attention on it. Perfecting an art is all about making it the central thing that you're pursuing. The first step to take is to become aware that love is an art just as living is an art. If we want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way we have to proceed. If we want to learn any other art, say music, painting, carpentry, or the art of medicine or engineering. What he's positioning that against is this, what he sees as these three premises that he's going to reject. So I, we've already talked about it, but one is that this confusion of being loved with loving, or the, seeing the problem of love as a matter of being loved, when it's a matter of mastering the art of loving. The second is treating the art of love as a problem of an object as opposed to a faculty, right? Finding the right person as opposed to becoming good at loving as a type of activity. And then... The third is the 
confusion between falling in love, infatuation, and then being in love, which he thinks is something more permanent and more substantial than that particular feeling that we have, that exciting feeling of fusing with another person. So there's sort of a parallel here, right, between the distinction between eudaimonia or Aristotelian or ancient Greek happiness and flourishing with the subjective feeling that we might have at a particular time saying, I'm happy. Those two things are different. And Fromm wants to make a similar claim about what it means to be in love. It's not simply a certain subjective feeling. It's an interesting tension in the uh, the thing that he's arguing about. On the one hand, you've got this, oh, I'm falling in love. I'm passive. I, I can't help what happens to me. And the, on the other hand, this He's against this economic perspective, which were in the two other points that you made. If the important thing is not knowing how to love, but being lovable, then what that means is how can I make myself more attractive? How can I make myself more successful? And that'll make me more lovable. And then likewise, the focus on the love object is, well, how can I maximize the fish that I catch? How can I get the, the most attractive, most successful possible mate? Those two aspects of calculation seem to fly in the face of the helplessness of falling in love. And part of that myth is that, of course, we fall in love with with all the wrong people. We can't control that. But yet he doesn't pick on this sort of internal tension as being something that's wrong with the myth of today. One thing that seemed kind of missing with this was the idea that what role, let's just call it attraction in general, plays in it and abstracting that. And I'm thinking here a little bit of the way in which in the symposium, philosophy becomes an erotic activity, that you are attracted to knowing. And for Socrates, you could even go so far extrapolating from the symposium to other stuff that he has to listen to his daemon. He's drawn along, not powerlessly exactly, but with great force. His own activity is understood as being inspired in some important ways, even if it's rational, right? I guess I'm wondering about his interpretation of that sort of quote-unquote conventional kind of love as being utterly passive is not quite the right interpretation of how being attracted to anything works, that there isn't something important about being drawn out of yourself, right? That you're inclined to go in a certain direction. And he seems to, and you see this later on, seat all the activity of our direction only within ourselves, that we are only ever always going through our own source. There's never a sense of something outside of us attracting our attention or pulling us along, that we're not embedded in any way. You're right. He doesn't emphasize this, the inherent attractiveness of the world in drawing us out. But it does seem just the picture that he gives of what a healthy activity amounts to. He gives creative action as one of the examples. And he sounds very much like Hegel, the way we talked about Hegel before in terms of when you make something, it's a piece of objective feedback that sort of gives back to you in doing that. And in Well, I was going to say in giving, you feel like you're receiving because the act of giving is so joyful. But that in itself also sounds like, well, actually connecting the thing would not be (laughs) essential for that. But he does see that if you love and yet your love does not produce a response, then it is impotent. So definitely an authentic actual connection to the world is required. I don't know whether that really addresses your complaint that isn't it just me making the connection. It just it seems like a real connection needs to have both parts involved. I guess the part that seems to be missing in some sense from his criticism even is just what the role of desire is. I mean, he calls it falling in love. That's the thing that he is criticizing. It's an error, the assumption that there is nothing to be learned about love 
lies in the confusion between the initial experience of falling in love and the permanent state of being in love. And it seems to me that in neither aspect of that criticism is he addressing the question of how desire is working for orienting us, whether it be erotic desire or any other kind of desire or appetite. So in a funny way, this whole thing about the art of loving minimizes the notion of appetite. Is it because desire and appetite implies lack and he's all about overfulness? Maybe that's it. Well, I do want to say one more thing about the... So when you mentioned the symposium, I thought about earlier trying to find my symposium notes because they're on paper and I didn't do that. And then I just looked on my desk and they're right here in front of me. (laughs) Uh, Just a stack (laughs) of papers. But so I see here that what I was trying to look for is I remember some crossover between what Fromm says about love having something to do with our productive capacities and the symposium sort of in the end or, or Socrates arguing about love as a kind of reproductivity as a production of beauty. I couldn't remember it exactly, but it, and then I thought of what is the role of desire? And then I, in my notes, I see when Alcibiades enters, ultimately Socrates calls him a seducer masquerading as a lover and then says yeah. that really loving is giving birth to virtue in the presence of beauty. Beauty, I presume, has something to do with virtue. So the question is, what is the thing we are attracted to exactly? Because beauty means something very lofty. What kind of thing is actually going to make us productive in the sense that I think both Socrates and Fromm are talking about? I suspect you're right, Wes. And from Plato's point of view, it would be you have to be attracted to the right sort of thing, right? Part of it is, is desiring the right sorts of things. Not being a seducer, but being a lover, There's the question of being attracted to a person, right, versus being physically attracted and the perennial question of Mm -hmm. how those two things are balanced against each other. And Fromm, I think you're right. He doesn't talk a lot about desire and the particulars of what it is we're going to be attracted to in a person because you could make the same claims about the person's virtues and personal characteristics that you could about their physical attractiveness, right? You could claim that in the end they're they're human and they're, they're not going to live up to an ideal and that what love really requires our activity in the face of that. But anyway, so I I think it's a good question going forward. In erotic love, what you're trying to do is connect with the center of your being with the center of someone else's being. And what you're feeding off each other is the things of life, your humor, your sadness, your interest, your understanding, your knowledge, your joy. So that's what you're attracted to. What would make someone a beautiful person is if they just radiate these things. And that helps bring out those things in you. They make you feel alive and vice versa. Yeah, I think in a way it becomes the act of loving that elicits the love of others. Yeah, I think that might be a quote from him. (laughs) Yeah, so as opposed to anything we could fashion ourselves into to be attractive in some superficial sense or other, although I think, again, it remains to be defined what superficial is. But when you get rid of all that, there really is just this act of loving and someone actually giving and sharing themselves. And that becomes the, let's call it the object of desire. So Seth, you are the newest married. Mm -hmm. Did this resonate or did you have a conversation with your wife about this or did it reflect your recent experience? No, I I have had a conversation with my wife about it and I am encouraging her to read the book. What resonated most with me was how Fromm does a pretty good job of simplifying these categories of parental dysfunction to kind of summarize how adults react in relationships. 
this notion that there's a balance, for example, that the motherly love, the mother has to love without the hope of that love being returned. But at the same time, there are these transitions where she has to be able to let go and to recognize the child's ability to separate and so forth. And that if she's too narcissistic or to something else, and that the father's love plays a certain role. And that the way that he describes the dysfunctions, or the way that he describes what can happen to the child if the loves are not informed properly and are not let go at the appropriate moment or balanced appropriately with the elements of the other aspects of love, how that can play out in adult relationships with a child, I actually thought was, it did resonate with me. It's the way you said that in terms of the mother has to love without hope of love in return. That sounds like someone who owns a snake, <laughs> not, not a mother. <laughs> I think the mother has a reasonable expectation that the child will be affectionate. There are mothers who can treat their children as a means to their own ends to meet their needs. And that becomes a problem, right, as Ron pointed out, as children get older, when they, mm -hmm. the whole goal is to separate from the mother and she has to be helping them do that. It's a strange kind of love relation in that sense, because if we think of love as Fromm generally defines it as this way of undoing separation, as a way of attaining union, the motherly love is actually trying to help the beloved separate instead of simply holding on to them. You know, you bring up this love as the answer to the problem of human existence, and you reminded me that we had started trying to kind of go in an outline form through here. We got in chapter one and then proceeded to go all over the place again. So we might as well bring up that main thing of part two or chapter two, the theory of love, which is what you just said, which is fundamentally a primal need is this need to merge in some way. I'm hesitant on how to put it just because he, the way he describes it is with this historical slash mythological take about man has emerged from nature as if animals, oh, they just have all this. They're just part of nature. And so they feel part of it all the time. But because we can reflect, we have been torn away from it. We have been thrown out of paradise and that gives rise to our need for love. It is just in keeping with throughout this, how he doesn't consider pets <laughs> capable of love. <laughs> Well, I don't, I mean, obviously, at least dogs, probably not cats, are capable of love. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to get a lot of hate mail over that one. But, you know, I think he's thinking in particular of the kind of love needs that you get from being a self-conscious being who knows that they're going to die. And what it means to have a human consciousness, right, is to be aware of a difference. The sense of separateness is much more acute in a being who is self-conscious and sees itself because of that as sort of standing apart from the rest of nature in that self-consciousness. It's an alienating fact about ourselves. So love, the way Fromm is framing it, that's why it's the solution to the problem mm -hmm. of human existence, our inherent separateness, that we are conscious of that separateness, and love is how we heal that. Mm-hmm. Separateness makes his separate, disunited existence an unbearable prison. He would become insane could he not liberate himself from this prison and reach out, unite himself in some form or other with men, with the world outside. That's page eight. So he's just describing existentialism. Yeah. And part of that is the sense in which separateness arouses anxiety and guilt and shame. And this is a very Fromm thing. He likes to talk about Adam and Eve and biblical stories. So the sense in which self-knowledge leads to shame. But there's a tension there with his criticism of the way in which capitalism is working. Because in that case, there's a way in which you're just being subsumed into the whole. You're part of this big machine and you have no distinction at all. 
So that criticism would seem to be that we don't have enough definiteness and individuality and we lose ourselves in that whole and then there's what we just talked about the problem of being separate as being the inherent human condition and we need to join up with other things in a way this fusion and he talks about this in chapter two that we can think of a kind of fusion as an orgiastic state and so what's the difference between the things we do to distract ourselves losing ourselves in a tv show which he seems to recommend against at various points in the uh, in the book and losing ourselves in whatever other sorts of fusion that love involves you know there's got to be a difference i think it's going to come down to whether that fusion is coming in some sense from ourselves as opposed to being merely receptive so the answer would be something like in capitalism you are a cog in a wheel but in love you are acting out of yourself in a loving way and then that is part of a relationship where you're getting things back you're not being merely receptive the unity achieved in productive work is not interpersonal the unity achieved in orgiastic function is transitory the unity achieved by conformity is only pseudo unity hence they are only partial answers to the problem of existence the full answer lies in the achievement of interpersonal union a fusion with another person in love. Right. And then that's going to need some explication. We, we should say he goes through these different solutions to alienation. Yeah. So. so the three solutions are you can try to overcome your loneliness by investing yourself in another person, which is the orgiastic function. That's not what orgiastic means. Come on. An individual, one other individual. Well, the way he describes it is like in a group taking drugs together and freaking out. That's how he actually talks about it, right? Not like an orgasm in sex. He talks about it as both, but yeah. Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying sex. I'm just saying the thing is if you try to overcome your loneliness through some sort of sensual experience, whether it's in a group or an individual, it's transitory. Gotcha. If you try to do it by being creative, so in other words, through art, or music or something like that, it's not interpersonal because you're creating an object, but you're not connecting with other people. And if you try to do it by conforming with other people, you get that interpersonal aspect, but it's not real unity because it's sameness as opposed to equality, encountering somebody as an equal or as an other. So all three of these are flawed ways that we in the modern world try to overcome our loneliness. And he diagnoses those three in, in various different ways. Just to pick on the creativity bit. So he says, whether a carpenter makes a table, a goldsmith, a piece of jewelry, whether the peasant grows his corn or the painter paints a picture, in all types of created work, the worker and his object become one. Man unites himself with the world in the process of creation. So that's a good thing. It's something we should do. Being creative ends up being a foundation of what he recommends, of the kind of person you have to be to be able to love it's just interesting that those examples, none of those, you said an artwork as your example. He doesn't talk about art anywhere in this essay. What? Does he? Yeah. Creative work. You think that's just craft? Well, that's exactly why I was reading that quote, that creating a thing like that, exactly, that's not interpersonal. Creating an artwork, like a piece of music that is meant to be heard by other people. I mean, that is an attempt at communication. It is not just something to please yourself. But how does that help you bridge loneliness? Even if other people enjoy the thing that you create, how does that bridge the interpersonal gap? Uh, it seems a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he wrote a book about it. 
just as he's saying, well, look, the worker and his object become one, man unites himself with the world in the process of creation. That's interesting, just again, to compare and contrast with Hegel's and Marx's picture of this. And the point is not that the worker and the, the object become one, but that the worker externalizes something, thereby sort of creating something that can be an objective thing from which he can distinguish himself. That the process of self-creation is actually the point. It's not a process of merging. I'm just not convinced by this idea creating something is merging with it. Yes, it absorbs you in an activity, and so in that sense, you're not filled with anxiety. Well, what do you mean? Does he claim that creating something is merger? Yeah, because I thought that the whole issue with loving was being productive. And so he focuses, especially at the end, on productive activities, which I took to be in line with this notion of craft and art. And the way he talks about love as an art like medicine and engineering and shoemaking or whatever. So I think we saw the same sort of thing in Hannah Arendt where productivity in the authentic sense, you know, not in the assembly line sense is, is yeah. a good thing. But there's this higher stratus of activity so he does talk a lot about productive work, but he does see human relationships and the activity of loving within those relationships as at a whole different, more important level. Sure. Because this is so similar to folks like Schopenhauer that we've read in the past in terms of the diagnosis of what the problem is, what causes suffering, you know, the conflict involved in things, and that Schopenhauer's solution to it. And certainly Fromm is very aware of Nietzsche, so he's at least by extension aware of Schopenhauer, is through art. That it really is a matter of a certain kind of productivity, but that maybe, right, does not inherently involve other people. And uh, Fromm would see that as immature, which I guess I, I agree. But for Nietzsche, too, it was a matter of making oneself, I think, a work of art. Again, being an artist is great, but for Nietzsche, it was about the fusion between the artistic and the scientific sides of us, right? Or the... Dionysian and the Apollonian. And it had something to do with us as human beings and and not simply with us as artists. And we could think about the same thing in Hegel and Marx. So I think even in Hegel, right, there's a stage. Hegel was responding to the Kantian idea that part of what makes us cohere, part of what makes us, well, for Kant, the coherence of the self depends on the coherence of our experience and objects within our experience. So Hegel comes along and says, Actually, the coherence of ourselves depends upon our relationships to other selves, other self-consciousnesses who reflect us back to ourselves. We are not constituted unless we have that. Mm -hmm. There's an intermediate stage where you're the worker and you see yourself reflected back to you in the object you've created. So that always stands at a lesser yep. level to the interpersonal reflective relationship. But I think you're right, Mark, where he says – that creative productivity is not interpersonal, I think that's kind of a loose way of saying it. Because obviously, it's interpersonal and some, it's proto-interpersonal. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Proto-interpersonal. <laughs> <laughs> to make it clear. What's in the mature kind of love that's different than some of these other solutions? It seems like it's a philosophical aspect. That the way that animals would overcome their separateness, which I got to think, the separateness thing is not just something that comes out of having reason and being distinguished from nature. Separateness is a much deeper problem 
And that's why animals huddle together. It's not because they're little balls of egotism doing a calculation of if I huddle against my brothers and sisters, I will attain warmth or something like that. In their experience, I would imagine, they have the same kind of desire for unity as anybody. And, you know, trying to divorce that from the sex drive and the drive to warmth and say that, no, 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 our humanity makes us so different than these others No, I think we still have those needs. It's just that if we only do those things, if we only cling to a a spouse or, you know, somebody that we're with for the day for warmth, basically, which is on the same level as, well, hopefully not exactly the same, but as snuggling down with your pet, (laughs) getting warmth and affection, that is something that we need. But of course, we as humans, because of our uniqueness, need more than that. So we need this philosophical thing. What he talks about is the secret We want to know the secret of the other person, the secret of humanity. And when we are really connecting to another person, well, it's not that we get to know them in their deepest depth, because the whole point is that there is no limit to the depths of the mystery, but we get to kind of bathe in the mystery of them. So we don't just want to cuddle up to them on the couch. We want our soul to cuddle up to their soul on the soul couch. (laughs) and see within each other the, the so universe. Couch. There are levels of cuddling. <laughs> On page 20, he talks about first base. <laughs> no, <they're> not. <laughs> oh, sorry, page 20, he's talking about sadism, actually. That's yeah, the beginning of the theory of love, right? There are four stages. So that's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting when he's talking about symbiotic union, different ways in which we can get interpersonal union Violence and sadism turn out to be one of them. Yeah, extended ego. So for instance, as a masochist, you can submit yourself to fate or to another person in particular and basically make yourself the instrument or the subject of someone outside of you. Renounce all personal autonomy and responsibility. And there's a kind of fusion in that. And then it's the same thing with the sadist. You fuse with another person by having complete power over them, in a sense, incorporating them into your activity. So these are ways of fusing which don't actually respect the integrity of other human beings. So from page 19, in contrast to symbiotic union, mature love, so symbiotic union where he's talking about masochism and sadism, mature love is union under the condition of preserving one's integrity, one's individuality. So... You know, I think when we were talking about fusion initially, it might have seemed like he was advocating the kind of degraded kind that he's just rejecting there. Yeah. In fact, he basically rejects symbiotic union yeah. in general, right? He rejects the human centipede model. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. Well, it would be rejecting Aristophanes' model, right? That we find the other that completes us. Totally. Yeah. So another thing he talks about here is that love is primarily, you know, he goes back into the love as an activity thing instead mm-hmm. of something passive. He talks about love as giving primarily. Love is the action, the practice of a human power, which can be practiced only in freedom and never as a result of compulsion. Yeah. And then where he talks about giving, he says, the active character of love can be described by stating that love is primarily giving, not receiving. Then he talks about the ambiguities of giving. Someone can be a martyr, for instance. That's not really being a giving person. So being giving is not saying to yourself, I'm going to make a virtue out of going and giving to other people and sacrificing myself. Be a kind of masochism, right? Yeah, exactly. You say it's painful to give and that's why it's a sacrifice. So there it's kind of a parallel to Nietzsche where he's rejecting this ascetic version of that. And then he goes into talking about 
giving it should be a result of overflowing, being rich, having excess to give. He talks about joyousness. It's interesting he doesn't talk about Nietzsche here. He talks about Spinoza, but it sounds a lot like Nietzsche. I think it's just who he's familiar with and probably yep. the reputation that Nietzsche still had at this point. I mean, he does do one reference to Nietzsche, so I'm near the very end, but... On what is my page uh, 23, <laughs> when he's talking about giving, I think this is probably one of the most awkward parts where he talks about sex. It is not difficult to recognize the validity of this principle by applying it to various specific phenomena. The most elementary example lies in the sphere of sex. The culmination of the male's sexual function lies in the act of giving. The man gives himself, his sexual organ, to the woman. At the moment of orgasm, he gives his semen to her. He cannot help giving if he is potent. If he cannot give, he is impotent. For the woman, the process is not different, though somewhat more complex. She gives herself, too. She opens the gates to her feminine center. In the act of receiving, she gives. Uh, or oh, you have to read the next sentence. If she is incapable of <laughs> this act of giving, if she can only receive, she is frigid. Uh, thank God that word has like, gone out of common usage. Well, remember, this guy's a psychoanalyst, and this is common problems that people come to psychoanalysts with they can't enjoy sex so impotence and frigidity mean something broader here which is the inability not just to get it up they're technical terms or get it in but yeah. <laughs> to enjoy sex at all and so yeah frigidity is now a uh, out-of-date word what's the new word i don't think there is a word maybe you could call it anhedonia or well no it's not even anhedonia i think it's a rational choice to not engage in sex that's all it is <laughs> right I mean, there's varying degrees, obviously, and some people it's actual impotence, and for some people it's just lack of enjoyment. And Freud wrote some famous papers on this. One is called The Universal Tendency to Debasement. I'm just going to put this out there for listeners if they want to read about the psychological causes of impotence. Very interesting stuff. Anyway, so yeah, that is a weird, uh, cringeworthy paragraph. You just can't – it's like novelists who try to write about sex and they usually fail. Or they write and you try and write explicit sexual scenes and then you just can't do anything but laugh at them. (laughs) Well, if I'm going to give a charitable reading, I think he was trying to say that in the act there's a a mutual giving that takes place in a healthy sexual encounter. It's just the language is fumbling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to call it hermeneutic abuse. Hermeneutic self-abuse or hermeneutic abuse? What he's trying to say, just like what you said, Seth, It makes sense that sex is an act of mutual giving if it's done right. But by then literalizing the details of it and saying it's the giving of semen and the giving of the sexual organ, like, no, on any level, that's not what someone is thinking when they're doing it. That is not what they're thinking unconsciously. There is no level at which that as a piece of poetry makes sense other than as somebody writing about it. Despite obsessions in pornography with cum shots, for instance, you're saying there's no significance to the idea of giving an ejaculation. That seems implausible to me because the sadistic part of it is just a twist on the whole idea of giving. For it to be sadistic, anyway, it's just getting kind of pornographic, but I would say there's more plausible to... All right. No, if you're looking for evidence in that realm, give it to me, baby. Give it, you know... Well, even if you didn't want to go pornographic, you just wanted to talk about making a baby, right? Sure. If you're trying to make a baby on purpose, that's going to be on your mind, right? Yeah. But the question is, is the man thinking, am I going to give this woman a baby? And is the woman thinking, I'm going to give this man 
a baby? I'm going to let the guys with children answer that question. <laughs> that was my experience. <laughs> so, so. Well, I, the one place where this kind of was a source of anxiety was somebody that I used to date. And she said one of these things like, if I don't find somebody by the time I'm 30, <laughs> then I want you this to really give me some semen so I can have a kid by myself. I thought you were making this up just for the... Yes, and she got kind of toward 30 such that this was brought up again, and I was like, I was a little uh, trepidatious at that Gift point. Gift of semen. So in that case, <laughs> she found somebody, luckily. She found her own giver. She found another donor. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. I don't want to make him sound like he's very much out of touch. There are two digressions in the text. One is this one. The other one is about homosexuality. I felt a little weird because I had recommended this, but I hadn't read it since I was a teenager or any from in a long time. And this is a book that I knew of because I knew it was popular, you know, once upon a time. And it was a book my mom always had on our bookshelf when I was growing up. You know, when I read it, I was a little bit disappointed on the whole with some of this cringeworthy language in places and a little new agey and the self-help aspect of it. And also I didn't think his thoughts on Freud were the most sophisticated. But uh, overall, I think Seth is right. There's a lot of worthwhile stuff in here. So you get right down to it. The thesis is something like this. We are separated from each other existentially, and that creates the situation of loneliness. And we strive to find connection with others to overcome this loneliness and to be satisfied in a very deep and meaningful way. And unfortunately, the models that were given for how we should do this by modern society fail in many ways. One is immersing yourself in some kind of ecstatic ritual, whether it's with an individual or with a group. One is conforming to the norm. Another is creating art. And then there's a model where there's this passive view that if you just find the right thing to attach yourself to, it'll solve all your problems. And what he's saying is, no, love is a practice. It's hard and it's intentional. And not only that, you can't love without having other virtues. Namely, there's the section, and since I'm reading on Kindle, all I know is how much time I have left, <laughs> not what page I'm actually on. But he says, beyond the element of giving the active character of love, which is just to say that you have to intend it and you have to practice it, becomes evident in the fact that it always implies certain basic elements common to all forms of love. These are care, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. And he talks very early on about the idea that love is epistemic, that it's not apophantic and passive, but rather intentional, and it requires knowledge, and that getting to know somebody and getting to know the other is one of the requirements for how you come to love them. Yeah, this is later because that's one of the four, yeah, the knowledge part. Right. But he mentions it early, early on in the essay. In fact, maybe even on the first couple of pages where he talks about the, the necessity of knowledge. And what he's trying to say is something like this. If you have a sentiment about another person from a distance, this notion of pity or compassion or empathy without any real knowledge of the other, without any real knowledge of them, without having any contact with them, you're somehow not bridging that gap. You're not closing off the distance. You're not overcoming your loneliness by connecting with that person. And there's this need to have at least some kind of deep intimacy with the other 
to bridge this gap and to connect with them. Those are all, I think, noble and admirable sentiments, regardless of how they're clothed inside of, of the essay. Early on in that explanation there, you made me really think that porn producers, in addition to the other role-playing sort of scenarios that they depict of, oh, I hope your sister doesn't find out we're doing this or whatever crap, should have existentialist porn, should have, I'm so lonely, help me overcome my loneliness. I think that would be a, a good seller. I think people could relate to that. It's a new genre. You want my company? Oh, yeah, I'll give you some company. <laughs> PL produces existential porn. <laughs> We're going to so watch Game of Thrones tonight. Together. All right. Jean-Paul Sartre's no exit. All right, so love to truly overcome the separateness of our existence. It involves knowledge. It involves epistemology. It involves wisdom. It involves not just snuggling up to something, but somehow understanding it. Yeah. And knowledge is one of these four virtues, care, responsibility, and respect and knowledge. So I think because he calls back to them, we should just briefly say what they are. So care, for instance, he's thinking of care as in the mother's love, and he has a great line, love is the active concern for the life and the growth of that which we love. So by care, he just means the kind of love that makes us want to take care of something or someone. Yes, define a term with itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes, no. He does tell the story about Jonah, which I love this. Uh, Just got to bring in freaking biblical stories yeah. whenever he can. Well, that's what they're good for. Yeah. That's what they're good for? You mean Jews? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> biblical stories. Biblical stories are good for making points. That's what they are for. See, here's Jonah. Jonah didn't yeah. care. Jonah was selfish, and he ended up in the belly of a whale. Which symbolizes his isolation. So Jonah was yes. more about justice than mercy. But he was merging with the whale. No, he was at the physical center of the whale, but not the spiritual center. Oh. You know, I, I realize it's kind of an odd example for this one. <laughs> so responsibility, who wants to say what your responsibility is? It is response ability. It is the ability to respond. <laughs> so Heideggerian. Yeah, so if you're not responsive, you can't be loving. No. Responsibility here just means that you have a feeling of responsibility for the other, not the ability to respond, but the sense that you're... He says that. I'm quoting. No, no. He says to be responsible means to be able and ready to respond. Yes, he does say that. And then he says he feels responsible for his fellow men as he feels responsible for himself. To say it's simply the ability to respond is... He's trying to argue a little bit against the common sense notion of responsibility where it's just you're to blame or something. You have a, a right. burden. Yeah, or duty, right. Yeah, he says in the end, in the case of the mother and her infant, responsibility refers mainly to the care of physical needs. In the love between adults, it refers mainly to the psychic needs of the other person. It is a weird way to define responsibility, now that you... If someone needs something from you and you can give that... You wouldn't say that... It's your duty to change your baby's diaper. Exactly, right? So I guess if we've combined Seth's idea, yeah, someone has a need and it's, yeah, it's not my duty to respond to the need. It's a, I feel responsible for that, meeting that person's need. Yeah. If your wife is crying because she's heartbroken about the fact that her child's grown up and moved off to college, it's not your duty to go and console her, right? Kant would say it's your duty. <laughs> Yeah, but Fromm is not saying that, right? So, let me get respect. Responsibility could easily 
deteriorate into domination and possessiveness were it not for a third component of love, respect. So acknowledging a person's unique individuality, not treating them as a means to an end or an, an object for my use. Concern that the other person should grow and unfold as he is. And then finally, respect requires knowing. Care and responsibility would be blind if they were not guided by knowledge. Seeing the other person on, the, their, on his own terms, seeing a person who is angry, uh, looking deeper than that, not seeing them as an angry person, but as a suffering one. Which I was trying to think about how just the way he puts this, what kind of therapist he was, because it seems like if you're a therapist in anything like the Freudian vein, you're not seeing the other person on his own terms. Yes, you do have some of these other things. You want them to flourish, but the point of being the therapist is not to see the other person in his own terms, to get beyond the limitations that the other person has in the way that they see themselves and pull the person's levers, really, or help them to pull their own levers to get past the bullshit. If you saw the other person in their own terms, that would be uh, detrimental. You have to get inside their heads. And if they're delusional, it doesn't mean that you share their delusion. But you need to be able to understand, to have some sort of empathetic understanding of why they're delusional, what put them in that position. So I think there's something to be said for that kind of understanding, even if you're, you know, at some level, you're, you're not simply buying their story. This is the point where he gets into the secret and this desire to know someone so completely that you might even do that through torture and sadism and all these cruelty and destructiveness and those horrible things. But he denies that that's really knowing, right? Because knowledge would be empty if it were not motivated by concern. So I took him to be in line with his criticisms of modern science as knowledge not properly guided by concern, for instance, that something like torturing someone to get to know who they are is knowledge run amok, not the kind of activity of knowledge that he's talking about. In fact, in this section, he explains that it has to be you know, tempered or it's part of this, these four aspects of love. So knowledge in, I guess, in the realm of the activity of love, which wouldn't do that, right? He's setting us up for the path of love is knowing the secret. And he's going to say the only way of full knowledge lies in the act of love. So he doesn't say a lot about, at least here, about, you know, he does mention it. So, for instance, a child who takes something apart in order to know it or even tears the wings off a butterfly, that kind of cruelty. So you could see that kind of sadism as having something to do with the scientific mode of approaching things. Yep. I just want to call back to the uh, No Country for Old Men episode where the sadistic killer in there, uh, you know, he liked to look in the eyes of the people as they were dying. And right. That was one of the things. That's not scientific knowledge. That was a, an attempt no. to bond on a personal level. Yeah. And wordless. So it actually had some of the elements that uh, Fromm is recommending, but just not so much the care and concern element. Yeah. So Fromm gives this example from Isaac Babel quoting an officer in the Russian war who, you know, shooting someone wasn't good enough. So he says, with shooting, you'll never get at the soul to where it is in a fellow and how it shows itself. So this idea of getting at someone's soul through cruelty. For Fromm, it's a degraded approach, of course. It's unclear. Here, exactly what he would say about why it's the... <laughs> I mean, we know why it's bad, but theoretically... So he contrasted at the end that another path of knowing the secret is love. Love is the act of penetration of the other person in which my desire to know is stilled by union. In the act of fusion, I know you, I know myself, I know everybody, and I know nothing. 
I know in the only way knowledge of that which is alive is possible for man by the experience of union, not by any knowledge our thought can give. Sadism is motivated by the wish to know the secret, yet I remain as ignorant as I was before. Right. I have torn the other being apart limb from limb, yet all I have done is to destroy him. Love is the only way of knowledge which in the act of union answers my quest. In the act of loving, of giving myself, in the act of penetrating the other person, I find myself, I discover myself, I discover us both, I discover man. So the way in which these other ways of knowing are corrupt is that they leave you isolated. You're trying to know a person and destroying them is not a good way to <laughs> to accomplish that. Yeah, And you destroy the thing that you're making a union with. And therefore, what you've done is just isolated yourself. Yeah. And so there's no way in which you've fulfilled the knowing or the love. I mean, that's why love is the way to get at that knowing. So he brings in the... Uh Command to know thyself in here, page 31. Even if we knew a thousand times more of ourselves, we would never reach bottom. We would still remain an enigma to ourselves as our fellow man would remain an enigma to us. The only way of full knowledge lies in the act of love. This act transcends thought. It transcends words. It is the daring plunge into the experience of union. However, knowledge and thought, that is psychological knowledge, is a necessary condition for full knowledge in the act of love. Really? So you need to know some psychology. That's a funny thing coming from a psychologist. <laughs> Seems like there was no love before a certain point in history when psychology was developed. Am I reading that uncharitably? Does that mean psychology in the technical sense or does it mean psychology in the broad sense? I don't know. But basically, it's about overcoming this distorted picture of the other person, which will later on, he's going to tie that to narcissism and so the way we misunderstand people all the time, we read them through our own lenses and our own particular needs and concerns. So again, that example of someone who's angry and you could just see, no, he's angry. Well, now I'm angry at that person. They shouldn't be angry. Or you see it as an indication of suffering that elicits empathy instead, for instance. So he talks about this looking at people objectively. You know, that would be a more objective, loving, because the two go together, way of seeing the person. So we've talked about the idea that knowledge has an inherent sense of violence and oppression, right? So some of the things we've talked about on the podcast, it's knowledge as possession, as penetration, right? All these metaphors where the act of knowing, because it's inherently tied up with the notion of subjectivity and objectivity and intentionality, that it's asymmetric and has a violence inherent in it. Do you feel like his attempt to say, that love is somehow knowledge, but knowledge tempered by care and respect, that it overcomes that objection? Or is the idea that is overall the whole framework, that the structure of love is union through knowledge, even if it's not conscious knowledge in the way that we think about it? Is there ultimately a problem there? Or do you think that throwing in these kind of mitigating factors somehow takes the sting out of using the metaphor of knowledge. Is what's supposed to be harmful or aggressive about knowledge the propositional element? Because that's what he's offering an alternative to. In fact, I don't think I emphasized the words correctly when I was reading that quote about our know thyself. The only way of full knowledge lies in the act of love. In other words, it's not the act of love as opposed to knowing yourself. It's in the act of love. This act transcends thought. It transcends words. 
is the daring plunge into the experience of union. So is it the fact that you're not trying to grasp it through language means it's less aggressive? I suspect that that's the intention. But then does the use of the word knowledge even make sense at that point? Well, clearly there are lots of kinds of knowledge that are not matters of explicit words. You know, this is not just a matter of gazing deeply into somebody's eyes, maybe as they die or during sex or something, but being attentive to them, being respond, responsible in, the, in terms of responding to them. So the way that you know them is like he gives the example about being conscious of yourself. It's not being self-conscious as being worried. It's paying attention to what you're doing, being in the moment, but being aware if your body is complaining, you know, if, this, if you're straining. So just think of this as an athlete or something. And so correspondingly to really love somebody else is to, well, you could think of it very physically during sex, again, that you figure out technique by actually paying attention and responding to them. But then in the larger sense, living with this person, you know what their needs, you might not be able to write them all down, but you could probably go on and on if you were asked about things about your beloved. At least you should be able to produce an endless number of facts, but those wouldn't exhaust what you know about them and the way that you know it. Right. In other episodes, we've contrasted the notion. So we have knowledge understood as an act of reason. It's an intentional act, kind of bound up in the whole subjectivity, objectivity, metaphysics. Then we've had practice Mm -hmm. which is that Eastern thing about where we've struggled in the episodes, particularly on Zen and Taoism, about the idea that there's a type of knowledge that's a practical knowledge, not in an Aristotelian sense, but in the sense of knowledge that comes from practice, that it's not something that you can grasp with reason. And then we have apophantic, this idea of kind of sudden and immediate experience, which gives some kind of enlightenment or experience. And initially, what I thought he was saying was that the knowledge he's trying to describe, the art of loving, is the, it's love as a practice, in the same way that we think of Eastern philosophers or Buddhists or whatever who meditate and they practice towards enlightenment. But now I'm not so sure that that's what he thinks he's driving at. I don't know the, you know, what kind of knowledge is this? which I think is your question. I mean, it gets into later on into paradoxical logic and some of the Eastern philosophy stuff. Seth, are you saying something like one of the ways in which we all always or often understand knowledge is taking things apart and by understanding its part and how those parts are related to one another, we have knowledge. That doesn't seem to be this kind of thing he's talking about in terms of being directed always towards union. I think that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm trying to relate this to other things that we've looked at over the years. So we have the notion of knowledge that is connected with reason. Our typical philosophical, standard, scientific way of thinking about things, that we exercise our reason and there are rules and categories that are applied and we come to grasp a thing intellectually through its essence. That's one form. Then we have the notion of knowledge that is more practical, and in sometimes we've seen it as knowledge that comes through practice in the form of craft, like a kind of knowledge that the master well, the art, has. Yeah. The yeah. art, right? And then we have the notion of 
and this is kind of tenuous, but we've sort of played around with it in the past of knowledge that comes through practice, not so much of an art of a craft, but the kind of knowledge that's more like enlightenment where you meditate or you repeat certain activities over and over again. And it's not for the purpose of getting artful in the execution, but to having some kind of an epiphany or some kind of a, an experiential knowledge, let's call it. And then there's apophantic, as I mentioned, which is just Saul on the road to Damascus or whatever, where Saul becomes Paul. And initially, I thought what he was proposing here was something along the lines of more like the Buddhist enlightenment thing. But the more I think about it, the more I think that doesn't quite fit because it's not like you practice and you practice and you practice with somebody for years and then suddenly you're in love with, oh, oh, I finally attained enlightenment. Yeah, no, it's not that for sure. It's not that, it's not sudden, but it's also not something that you can do as a purely intellectual exercise. It's an art, but he's not buying into the whole Aristotelian concepts of praxis here. There's something else going on. There's kind of a little twist with this respect and care and the structure. And as he teases out, in the latter half of the book, which I don't think we're going to have time to get to, these different forms of love, it's not simply that you work on the craft. That's too much like the creative act, right? Praxis, where you're like working on a shoe or you're a carpenter or something like that, is too objective, where you're investing yourself in the object. This is somehow different from that because there's another human being involved and it's not simply acting on an inanimate object. It's almost like this is the inverse of war. If we think about the art of war, not in a modern sense or a Sun Tzu sense, but like thinking in terms of Greek tradition, this idea that warcraft is an art and it does involve another human being. But in this case, you're talking about sort of the inverse of that instead of wanting to overcome or dominate the other, or in this case, it's care and respect. Well, at least you're tying pretty directly into the next thing that's discussed in here, which is the connection with the love of God, which occupies quite a few mm-hmm. pages here. Well, actually, the next thing is love of parent and child. And he gets into these different objects of love, right? What we've just been discussing is the first part of the theory of love section is the love, the answer to the problem of human existence. And then we get into love between parent and child. And he starts out with the unconditional love of the mother where, you know, as a child, you have the feeling eventually of I am loved because I am kind of thing. It can't be acquired, produced Mm -hmm. or controlled. And then at some point, the father's love becomes relevant. The fatherly love is more conditional. It's more about being loved because you fulfill patriarchal society's expectations. You succeed at things. And again, when we're talking about mother and father, we're talking about the caveat that we're talking about motherly and fatherly principles, right? A mother or father could both play a maternal role or a fatherly role. So it's a kind of simple way of talking about things. So yeah, those are the two sort of main types of parental love. I wrote so utterly mind-numbingly conventional and (laughs) old-fashioned. Even with the qualification that they're meant to be categories or that would be the generous interpretation we saw the same sort of idea in lacan right the name of the father is the so this idea that you start out in this situation of a symbiosis 
think of it as a cell and then the cell's got to divide and so there's got to be a dividing principle and the father becomes the severing principle. The problem is is that it prejudices the language by making it mother and father and that's my reaction. If in finding it be so old fashioned and mind-numbingly conventional just because was your experience as a father that that's not true to your experience, the maternal bond being different than the paternal? Or No, of course not. Of course your love is unconditional in the same way. And both mother and father, conditional love is dickish love. Like, <laughs> yes. yes. So thinking that like it's any part of the parental role to express conditional love is ridiculous. If you don't uh, mow the lawn, uh, when I tell you to, I won't love you. You know what? I'm just going to kind of stop hugging you a little bit. Why is it that people develop an absurd need to succeed? You know, if you're wealthy, to send your kid to a very fancy preschool and set them up in that kind of competition immediately. So even if you think to yourself, yes, I love my child unconditionally, a lot of parents certainly are pressuring their kids and I think make it seem as if their love depends upon their accomplishments. I don't think that's some kind of uncommon thing in society. Or resentment. There are certainly people that love their children unconditionally, but at the same time harbor some resentment. Well, yeah, there's the complexity of you know having negative feelings towards one's kids as well. But I'm just saying that if everyone were loved unconditionally, you wouldn't see so many people driven in the way that they're driven to accomplish things. I would say the, the establishment of expectations and the discipline and those kinds of things that are considered, quote-unquote, fatherly in from it's not clear to me that those are not just different than love. So, yes, of course, part of my loving my child is going to be wanting them to grow and flourish, and part of them growing and flourishing successfully is to establish rules and boundaries. And that is part of them growing up to become an independent person. So that is an act of love. But it's not as if that in establishing those boundaries that I'm going to love them less because they rebelled against me or whatever. I might be annoyed and pissed off and all that stuff. But it's not that they have to come and get those little chits. You know, the characterization of that activity as love just seems so bizarre. Yeah. But I think, you know, so as an infant, you know, there is still something conditional about that, right? Though if your child does something wrong and you're disappointed with them at some point in childhood, that's a terrible thing to happen. Daddy is disappointed in me. Sure. Absolutely. Forget about mother and father and think of two different types of love. One, which is totally unconditional and the other kind, which is helping you individuate. And to do that, it has to set boundaries and it has to frustrate you. You know, it has to say, okay, get on the potty and do your thing. And if you don't do that, I'm going to be disappointed. Part of the motivation is they want to please you and they don't want to disappoint you, you know, or it could just be they're afraid of you. Hopefully it's not that, but it's so, you know, at some point there's a stick involved in helping this other person individuate. That's really the fundamental distinction we're trying to make. Helping someone grow by simply nurturing them or helping someone grow by giving them, you know, negative feedback essentially and, and setting up an ideal that is different from what they are. You should be the one who's potty trained. Ultimately, you should be a doctor, you know, if you have that kind of parent or any sort of ambitions that rise out of that, whether it's meeting parental expectations or re meeting societal expectations. I think we're all saddled to some extent by that. 
What I'm wondering aloud is whether training and education are the same thing as love. Well, I think it's a matter of approval, you know, getting the approval of teachers or parents. And you could say, well, yeah, you may have lost my approval in a specific circumstance, but you didn't lose my love. But its significance, psychological significance may still be the feeling of a loss of love. That may be the threat that's hanging over the kid, even if you as a parent don't feel that way, right? Obviously, you're not going to – being disappointed in your kid doesn't mean hating your kid or doesn't mean on a holistic level not loving your kid. But in a particular instance, it could feel like that to someone and that, that could be the motivating factor. I'm just trying to get at this fundamental distinction between being worried about disappointing someone because you aren't meeting expectations and then being in the other place of I'm loved because I am and there's nothing else. That unconditional love, none of us gets that in the end once we mature, unless we've met someone who's mastered the art of loving. (laughs) Or I don't know, is he even saying that in the end? I'm not sure. No, I think the implication we have to draw on here that part of the art of loving is paradoxically enough to express conditional love in this way. In other words, to have training, to have care. Dylan is right. Like calling it these two types of love just seems a little ridiculous. Like these should just be two aspects of what it is to love something. That is to express this underlying emotional support that's going to be consistent. It's not going to go away no matter what you do, but then also to somehow give some sort of motivation. And it could just be that he's just describing fairly accurately how the division of labor went in households of at least his youth, if not the actual 50s in which he's talking. Or in a patriarchal society, which I think many people still think we live in a patriarchal society. I mean, I think we have to leave aside the sociology and the question of the accuracy of whether it's the father, you know, even with his caveats of the extent over history to which it's been the father, it has been the lawgiver as opposed to the mother. And we just have to accept these as two kind of generic principles. The lawgiving principle, mm-hmm. which is the limiting and curtailing and individuating principle, and then the cohesiveness principle, the unconditional love part. All right. Can we move to God? Are we ready? <laughs> Good God. How does he actually move from parent to God here? Actually, the next section is the objects of love. <laughs> yeah, he goes through brothers and mothers and the exotic. And the no, no exotic. <laughs> the strange. I wish there were a section on exotic love. So the brotherly love, it's not exclusive. It's the love of all human beings. So exactly the kind of thing we'd think it is. Yeah. This is all in the concepts of objects of love. So it's the recognition, he said, that we are all one. The differences between our various personalities is just so slight compared to all the similarities and just expressing a basic empathy for people. And it's this idea of the equality of human beings. and Yeah, the idea that it implies a love for everyone, including yourself. I think he's trying to cordon off the notion of selfless, and this goes back to that what I was talking about erotic love, I guess this is where you guys were saying that I was already jumping ahead to the second part, that to love some without loving all, whether that some is a one or a group, indicates that you don't have the capacity for love, true love, love that unites essences. Yeah, so he says that at the end of this section, actually. Here lies the basic difference to erotic love. In erotic love, two people who 
who were separate become one in motherly love, two people who were one become separate. After brotherly love, he gets into this motherly love, which we've already talked about a little bit. But, you know, one of the aspects is this unconditional part of it. But there's preservation of the child's life and growth. And then there's this other it is good aspect. He compares that to the Genesis where God follows everything by saying it is good or the land of milk and honey. Mothers provide both milk and honey. Although he does end up saying only a minority of mothers give honey. But the idea is to instill the sense that you are good and life is good. That's one of the mothering functions here. I had wished that my mother had the honey boob installed. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Part of the joy of doing this podcast is just Mark embarrassing Dylan, I have to say. So then he talks of the narcissistic mother who could see a child as a way of meeting her own needs, not fostering the separation he talks about. But ultimately, you know, the true maternal function is to help the child separate. That's where we got the contrast between erotic and motherly love. So that's what leads into this next section on erotic love. I'm skimming the erotic love section and it just seems that we've said most of this already before. It is the craving for complete fusion for union with another person. Ta-da. That's exotic love, right? <laughs> well, Quite exotic. Just remove the word person, then you have exotic love. And he gets into the section on self-love and distinguishing it from selfishness and trying to give a sense in which self-love is actually a requirement. We can't love other people without loving ourselves, the kind of thing that is now very popular in self-help books. I don't know if Fromm was the first person to say this type of thing. He probably wasn't. So he does say something in this section, which I found a little bit strange. It makes sense in the context of what his bigger project, but he says, this is on page 55 in mine, which probably in Mark and yours is on 53. To love somebody is the actualization and concentration of the power to love. The basic affirmation contained in love is directed towards the beloved person as an incarnation of essentially human qualities. Love of one person implies love of man as such. At that point, I felt like, well, then why are there any different kinds of objects of love anyway? I just found it kind of weird. Well, it's a very high standard, right, to say that. So normally we think of this Christian ideal of loving thy neighbor as thyself as an ideal. And we don't think of our personal relationships as depending on that ability. But Fromm is you know, raising the bar very high. He's saying that to truly love in our personal relationships, we have to love that person the same way. It's not that we can't also love them erotically and and in other ways, but we have to be able to love them as we would in that love thy neighbor sense. I guess it depends on how you take implies. He's making a, it's almost like a kind of political statement you would make when you try to link the love we have for our spouses or our family to the love of neighbors, to the love of our community, to say, we're all not so different from one another and so forth and so on. It just seems to be the point is that you have to have an openness, that you can't love an individual person unless you have just this openness, this attentiveness. And that's going to not be something that you can just turn on with your significant other and turn off with everybody else if it's actually an authentic thing. And so you have to have the kind of curiosity the kind of openness that would make you when you run into a stranger and get in, you know, would make you want to strike up a conversation and get to know them and not just treat them like an object or an impediment or ignore them. Yeah, that's true. That's a good way of putting it. The idea that you have to have this almost Christ-like 
ability to engage the poor and the destitute and what have you if you're capable of having any kind of relationship with somebody else. There's a very elitist, or he says at a few points, that in our society today, there are not really many people who are really capable of loving in the fullest sense. At the end of the essay, page 113, I should add here that it's just as important to avoid trivial conversation. It's important to avoid bad company. By bad company, I do not refer only to people who are vicious. To the band. Bad company. <laughs> I can't Definitely that. avoid that band. Uh, down, down, down. Bad company. <laughs> are there any living members left you can interview on your podcast, Mark? Yes, Paul Rogers, sure. Wow, apparently you haven't been avoiding them. So you know that much about them. Anyway, he says uh, we should avoid their company because their orbit is poisonous and depressing. I mean, also the company of zombies, of people whose soul is dead, although their body's alive, of people whose thoughts and conversations are trivial, who chatter instead of talk, who assert cliche opinions instead of thinking. So this is, I think, in a very practical matter, like, well, why don't you go and help those who are less fortunate? Well, I mean, obviously there are a lot of different excuses one could give for that, but one of them is, I recall when Wes and I were roommates in oh, in Austin, there was some like homeless guy that just wanted us to let him in. It was raining outside and he came like knocking on our door. I think we might've given him money earlier or I did or something. And we didn't know, we didn't let that guy in because of course we're scared of letting some random stranger into our also, didn't he see the picture of Ayn Rand that I had taped to the door? <laughs> Does he think he's going to get money out of us? No. Or shelter. Sorry, shelter out of us. I have no memory of that incident, by the way. You know, the idea that of going around as an open sore, as an open book, wanting to take in every stranger and love every stranger. Jeez, I, that's scary. It would be self-annihilating. Yeah. Yes, because a lot of... People are going to take advantage of that, are going to be hostile, or, you know, certainly we are overly timid and... Well, nowhere does he prescribe that we have to become... He does talk about... Where does he talk about becoming a monk or something like that? Well, okay, page 131. Does loving everybody, does that not imply giving up all one's secular concerns and sharing the life of the poorest? There we go. This question has been raised and answered in a radical way by the Christian monks who share the opinion of the basic incompatibility between love and normal secular life within our society. They arrive at the result that to speak of love today means only to participate in the general fraud. They claim that only a martyr or a mad person can love in the world of today. Hence, all discussion of love is nothing but preaching. He says, this very respectable viewpoint lends itself readily to a rationalization of cynicism, shared implicitly by the average person who feels, I would like to be a good Christian, but I would have to starve if I meant it seriously. This so-called radicalism results in moral nihilism. Both the radical thinkers and the average person are unloving automatons. And the only difference between them is that the latter is not aware of it, while the former knows it and recognizes the so-called historical necessity of this fact. So after those polemics, he does say that the principle underlying capitalistic society and the principle underlying love are incompatible. Because it sounds like the people he's responding to think that it's impossible to love within this type of society. That's why we have to withdraw from it. Then he goes on to say, yeah, it's hard. And then it says, love is by necessity a marginal phenomenon in present Western day society. But nevertheless, people are capable of love and it's still possible. It does seem like preaching to me. I mean, at some point he's prescribing, you know, you shouldn't w read stories or watch TV. Or he said you should spend your time reading, but not with stories or TV or something like that. With a minimal number of mysteries and other kinds of lightweight I stuff. I mean, you see the sort of strain in, in these early 
critical theorist in general. I mean, we'll get when we read Adorno coming up at the culture industry, you'll see many of these types as kind of moralism about entertainment and trivial pursuits and things like that. So there's what I'm trying to get at. I do think there is a moralistic and maybe unrealistic edge to all of this, this idea that only a few will love and Yes, in some very elite sense, okay. But do average people just living their lives, are they failing to love just because they have to go to an office and come back and deal with all the bullshit that we all have to deal with? Yes, if you give this very elitist kind of definition to love. I wonder if anyone in any type of society, right, no matter how saintly they are, whether they really meet that standard. Right. So there's both a high bar of psychological health. There's three elements that we haven't really covered yet that we just at least need to mention before we wrap up here. One is the love of God thing, which is related very closely, branches out of this love of everyone, that it's just sort of general love of nature. And then he reflects on different ways in which people actually claim to love God and in sort of the feeling of Kierkegaard or Schleiermacher condemns the herd type of religion as being infantile in some way, that they love God like the father who they have to please or like the mother who they don't have to do anything to please, according to his earlier analysis. So we've got that part. We've got the uh, social commentary of how should society be transformed? And you were just referring to that about being at the office. And this reminds me a lot of our new work Mm -hmm. episode and the Hannah Arendt. And then the third bit is just the positive, how to change your mind, how to make yourself a virtuous kind of person who can love. So all these things are connected that having the right kind of society, of course, would let us develop into the right kind of people and being the right kind of person to be authentic, to be paying attention to the world around you, to not, like you were saying, get sucked up into trivialities of various sorts, either intentionally through these trivial entertainments, you know, to be a deeply spiritual person or through economic circumstances that make us to stay alive have to focus on trivial bullshit just as a matter of course, as a matter of the regular thing so that when you stop and are philosophical, that ends up being the exception. No, we need a society in which somehow people can be truly themselves and truly centered all the time. And then one of the expressions of that is what corresponds in the finest kind of religion to the love of God. But he has some interesting things to say about that, which make it, you know, explicitly when he goes through sort of the history of religion, that the most developed kind of religion is more like Spinoza's kind of religion, which if you know anything about Spinoza and the way he was criticized is basically atheism, that he's playing very much in the type of enlightened modern Judaism who they like Maimonides and our episode on that you can listen to of how stop talking about all the greatness that God has and all the positive attributes that God has. Really getting at God means saying, no, no, whatever God is, it's greater than those things. It's greater than greatness. It's greater than goodness. It is simply something that is too great for our minds to get a handle on. And once we start thinking about God in that way, we start thinking about God just as a sort of principle of justice, as something that is not a father. He's also moving us away from this idea that he attributes to Western civilization of thinking of God as an object of knowledge or belief and turning us towards this idea, you know, so he says in Brahmanism as well as in Buddhism and Taoism, The ultimate aim of religion is not the right belief, but the right action. So this turn towards action, because again, he's interested in art and practice. 
this idea that you give up God as a again as an object of thought and it becomes more about a way of living. You know, he ends that section on God associating these paternalistic or maternalistic religions. He calls them infantile and not mature. And he associates those with submission to the market and conformism in a capitalist society and that type of thing. So the social structures of our societies have something to do with this. And in the chapter three, he's going to talk about the way in which social structure can affect the way we love and be an obstacle to it, kind of uh, deform it or degrade it. I was resisting when he brought in this love of God thing for exactly the reason that we were talking about before, because we want love based on his own description to be something that is interactive. And so even love of humanity as a whole, well, that's still interactive or love of nature in that you're going out and helping nature. You're interacting in a positive way with animals. There's some sort of positive feedback loop. It's not just you and your own imagination. But when you get to love of God, that seems a little more problematic unless you think that God is a spiritual being that comes and messes with you. But then reading further the way he interprets God No, it really is just loving God is the same as being centered and being in tune with the world around you and acting ethically. His dating profile would say spiritual but not religious, I think it's safe to say. Lean's Buddhist. (laughs) And he's got this whole thing in there about the difference between Aristotelian logic and paradoxical logic and how that's related to this apophatic not apophantic. No, no, they're both real words. They're just different words. I looked them up while you were talking. It's not apophatic. Uh, but, I, but I will leave the, the <laughs> listeners to look them up. It's not worth our time to distinguish them. But the apophatic religion is the kind that you can't put it into words. It is the thing that comes out of that Maimonides negative theology um. tradition and that then yields so nicely to some kind of mysticism. And mysticism and emphasis right. on practical action. Strange that those would go together, but they're both nonverbal. You think too long, you're wrong. So anything else about any of those three points that interested the rest of you, about the love of God, how do we transform society, or how do we be a centered, awesome person? I think we should say something if we want to touch on anything in, in these last chapters. Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to sum up what's in the chapters that we hadn't gotten to yet. Oh. No, he's guiding us to the end. He's exerting his fatherly principle. And if you don't do it, I won't love you. <laughs> our audience love us. So let's come up with some interesting points from these last parts that you guys wanted to talk about. Well, the the biggest one is the rational faith stuff in the practice of love. Love's disintegration in Western society is really just a recapitulation of the very beginning and maybe extension of it that one of the problems of Western society is that love has gone away. Now, you know, this is a capitalist kind of critique and so forth. And it's turned us into automatons who... Automatons, yeah, yeah. We are Devo. It's familiar and not so interesting. <laughs> I think it's a good summary of that chapter. <laughs> but in the practice of love, where he basically starts with some, you know, not dumb, but sort of straightforward, sort of self-helpy, but again, not stupid, <laughs> characteristics of basically training and how... The practice of love is like any other kind of practice of anything. It requires discipline, concentration, patience, supreme concern, that is focus. And uh, then he goes on to talk about how you do these, which basically amount to 
you need to develop a habit of concentrating and focusing yourself. But then he gets on at the end to this notion of needing faith. And this is part of how you emerge out of your own narcissism, Mm -hmm. out of your, he says, the ability to love depends upon one's capacity to emerge from narcissism, from the incestuous fixation to mother and clan. It depends on our capacity to grow, to develop a productive orientation in our relationship toward the world and ourselves. This process of emergence, of birth, of waking up, requires one quality as a necessary condition, faith. The practice of the art of loving requires the practice of faith. He's clearly using the word faith a little bit provocatively because, you know, he wants to say, oh, you think I'm talking about religion, don't you? But I'm not really talking about religion. I'm talking about rational faith. So rational faith is a conviction which is rooted in one's own experience of thought or feeling. Rational faith is not primarily belief in something, but the quality of certainty and firmness which our convictions have. Faith is a character trait pervading the whole personality rather than a specific belief. And so this rational faith ends up being faith and rationality. Yeah, later on he'll say, well, he'll give this basis of rational faith as productiveness. To live by our faith means to live yep. productively. You know, so he goes on to contrast irrational faith is rooted in submission to you know, the higher power. It's really rational faith is about our faith in our own powers to some extent. Yeah, exactly. That really brings home the notion which him using the word faith is provocative, right? Because in the end, he categorizes everything that you would sort of typically put under that rubric as being irrational. Yeah. Second rate faith. And in fact, maybe even part of the problem of submission to tyranny and poor living and maybe bad hygiene. I don't know. And it would make sense if he says that to excel in an art is to focus your entire life on it, that all these different elements of things he's recommending end up being basically one in the same thing, that having rational faith and having self-esteem are the same thing, right? Because that's having rational faith in yourself, that even if I have failings, I have faith that I can do it. I can work hard and I can make myself better. And that's the way you could have empathy with other people, that unlike the situation where I was describing where we or maybe I was afraid of letting the homeless person in the rainstorm into our house, we should have faith. We should be able to say other people are just like me. They're not around. They're not trying to screw everything up. They're trying to live with some comfort, you know, just have a little bit of faith that people are going to act like human beings, at least you know, until you're shown otherwise. And then if there's an exception, don't let that taint your view of all of humanity. And really, he says, even though this society is really messed up, it is not present a forum where you expect why I would be in this situation of not wanting to let the homeless guy. Well, that's because we're not in a culture where people do that. We are not in a culture where people support each other, where our relation to each other is primarily economic. And so we would expect other people to get their shit together and go get a job or whatever and not be homeless. Like that's just sort of written in the social contract. So, and our society is still better off in a lot of ways than many older societies. And so we've never actually had a society perhaps that has been optimally conducive to love of the sort he's describing. But yet 
We need to have faith in humanity, in our potential to progress, in our potential to realize what it is we really need and do intelligent things to construct our society in that way. And so despite the existence of Donald Trump, we need to have faith in humanity. (laughs) Do you have it? Because if you don't have it, you can't love. Sorry. It's a high bar. Who else wants to go? What'd you get out of this? Well, so I was unexpectedly pleased by the reading. It was nice to have something that wasn't as taxing to read, but also there's a pretty strong structure and flow to at least the first part. I thought the second part on practice was almost incomprehensible, but the first part on, you know, the theory of it where he lays out these different paradigms or structures, the paternal, the fraternal, the maternal, and so on. It made a lot of sense to me. Whether it was dumbed down or not nuanced enough, I don't know, but there were some very serious anchors there, and it was a sufficiently meaty and clearly enough laid out to form a basis for him to say, in order for you to love fully, you need to encounter and overcome or incorporate or whatever, all these different things. So I thought that was fine. I thought, like I said, the practice part just seemed kind of rambling and disassociated and wasn't very particularly helpful, but I enjoyed it. It is definitely a product of its time, but I get why it was so popular. And I thought it was a perfectly appropriate reading for this time and for us to kind of take a break after Aristotle, and I guess you guys had just done the Stoics. By the way, I tried to listen to the Stoic episode that you guys just did without me in preparation for this because Mark said there was going to be some kind of connection uh, talking about love. And I finally had the experience that so many of our fans do where I fell asleep listening to one of our episodes. It was glorious. Yeah. Uh, so it was, a good, it was a good experience to fall asleep. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was so nice. Was it because it was boring or no, because it was No, a... <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. Well, I sometimes listen to podcasts or audiobooks rather than read, and it's just a very soothing and calming way to transition from waking state to sleep. Huh. Well, can I say this book, despite its breeziness, transitioned me to sleep several times. I actually found it really hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I got sleepy and bored really? reading it. Actually, yeah. Mm. Actually, it's funny. I think you know they should put Seth's and Dylan's some of their evaluations on the uh, on the dust jacket, like <laughs> perfectly appropriate, or not too taxing, or not stupid. <laughs> Seth, you mentioned trying to get your wife to read this. That yeah, I kind of had the same feeling. Like you should read this. Then you'll do more to try to understand me. We should engage each other. We should try to understand each other better. (laughs) Come on. You know, I didn't really even think of it that way, Mark. I just thought it would be the kind of thing that she would appreciate and get something out of. I can say this. I know my wife well enough to know that if I suggest something for her to read or to look at, she will not at all get out of it whatever I think (laughs) or intend that she should. So I've stopped trying to pin my hopes on such things. And I just think she would have appreciated it. Read this part about motherly and fatherly love. This is what I'm going for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dylan? Well, it wasn't stupid. (laughs) I basically felt the same way as Seth did. It was easy to read. It was, I wouldn't call it 
you know, surprising or deeply thought-provoking, but I thought it was sort of a nice articulation overall of an idea that love is actually an activity that we do rather than something that happens to us. And overall, I think that he made that case reasonably well. It is a product of its time and probably a product of his time in part due to it being you know a popular book and so those things probably go hand in hand i did find the last two sections the one on disintegration of western society yeah you know sort of ho-hum and the last section on practice yeah also you know ho-hum but maybe a little less ho-hum certainly the most interesting part is the first sort of two-thirds about the theory of love and and so forth you're not going to run out and get his book, The Sane Society, where I guess he elaborates how we should fix the world and make it sort of Marxist, but not. <laughs> I wouldn't object to reading more of him, but reading this book didn't make me feel like, gosh, I'm really, really interested in what this guy has to say and want to go read some more. But I didn't find him revolting or anything either. So I was like, oh, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping there's something with more substance because the weird experience of recommending this book is I realized that, you know, I grew up with this mom who had all these shelves full of books and that was one of my primary ways of relating to her. And even as a young child, I was looking at these books. So when I say, oh yeah, Eric Fromm's Art of Loving, that's a great book. I really don't even know that. <laughs> it's just, it was part of my childhood. So it's a weird, you know. A sentimental love, not a real love. I have a few Eric from yeah books on my shelf and I've looked at them and I thought, yeah, this guy would be fascinating to read. And I know he was influenced by and also dated Karen Horney, who's a psychoanalyst who I think is a great writer. And although maybe if I went back and looked at, you know, she's writing for a popular audience as well. Maybe it's just I've been spoiled by reading all this technical stuff for so long, but it all seems fluffy at this point. I don't know. It's interesting to see him translate certain philosophical and psychoanalytic concepts for a popular audience, but it seems like he's a little too watered down for my tastes. He does name drop a lot. <laughs> Jonah. He's not observing our, our podcast rules. <laughs> you know, so the Sane Society, if there was something with more substance to it, I'd be up for reading more. But if it's the same kind of popularization at this point, after years of reading the stuff we've been reading, it doesn't do it for me. Let's put it that way. Maybe I'm a masochist or a sadist. <laughs> Sane Society is 1955. The first one is Escape from Freedom, which is about the Holocaust. I remember picking up Escape from Freedom years ago and just being totally fascinated by it. So, I mean, it would be nice to, to see more justification of anything. Like when Freud says something that you don't get, at least you know that somewhere there are clinical notes that back up what he's talking about. And here, I just don't know. I don't know whether to respect him enough as a psychoanalyst or whether he really is just kind of a humanistic philosopher. His reading of Freud is not a professional's reading of Freud. It's wrong. It's someone who's casually acquainted with Freud. That worries me with regard to, you know, what kind of substance is in and how much does he even know about Marx and Weber and all that stuff? I don't know. I mean, I certainly find it intriguing. I would be interested to hear what he, I think I would probably not like it, what he's actually recommending for social change. But certainly he's identified the same problem that we found in these other episodes about the the problem of work and alienation and just living in a shallow way. And can't we get a society that would 
put us in a position that would encourage us to be more philosophical. That would be great. Well, you'll see some of this, you know, when we get to the Adorno dialectic of the Enlightenment, you're going to see many of the same themes, obviously, and the critique of culture and capitalism. And yeah, you know, I'll be interested to see what you guys think of how substantial that is and how, you know, to me, the neo-Marxists and the critical theorists, I begin to wonder at some point how much they're actually contributing or whether they're just beating this particular drama about ideology over and over again and applying it. You know, cultural ideology is responsible for everything and movies aren't good for you, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Well, and I did find the last chapter on the positive, I found it very coherent and intriguing, but very demanding. It's another one of those things that made me feel bad about myself in terms of, you know, how comfortable are you being alone and not checking your phone every five minutes (laughs) and just being the kind of person who can concentrate and therefore can listen very well to your spouse or whoever, to really to anybody that is talking to you. It is overly simplistic and in some ways not very helpful because he's talking about symptoms and he's not necessarily giving you, it's not very successful as a self-help book. And he says it's not going to be successful when he says, yeah, people have a problem that they should be asleep at night and awake during the day and not at this halfway in between and kind of drowsy, but then staying up too late. Like, yeah, okay, that's a problem that I identify in my own life. But also the question is, what extent are these things really cultural? To what extent is it really a product of capitalism or reading Thoreau, Walden, we heard exactly the same types of critiques, but he was talking about how the telegraph had ruined society. Everything's happening so quickly and people are obsessed with the news and it's the same refrain you hear over and over again. So I wonder if it's not sort of an idealization, this ideal of the society where people aren't distracting themselves, where they're connected to themselves and nature and other people, or if it's just inherently human for us to be doing these sorts of things, if it's less cultural and it's more the product of basic psychosocial pressures that show up throughout history. And also nostalgia. I mean, in the Phaedrus, Socrates laments the use of writing. Yeah. To you know, distract ourselves from the conversation in exactly the same way of the examples that you just gave. And I could see a modern work you know, of self-help addressing some of these same things by just giving you a more strict exercise regimen. Like that's going to solve a lot of your problem. You having trouble concentrating, better diet, better exercise. Like there are physical things that I didn't see addressed here. It all has to be a social psychological problem. The problem could is never simply something that could be fixed physically. But maybe that's in the sane society. Maybe the sane society has a lot of push-ups. More push-ups, man. I have to read that another time. (laughs) No, there are no knee bends in the sane society. Those are dangerous. Come on. (laughs) He did co-write a book with uh, Richard Simmons, actually. Weightless squats. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day to you and uh, to everybody. Why don't you just, uh, it seems like unless you can express your love, really giving, that it gives you back. So giving a a donation of some sort, investing yourself, becoming one with the partially examined life through a uh, membership, a citizenship, it seems like that would be uh, very rewarding. So uh, why don't you go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and look about making a contribution or buying something from our store. Big donors since last time have included... Kim Stout, Frank Netzlaff, Rob Forsyth, Eric Moss, Rowena Alberga, Emilio Spadola, Clay Olson, Gail Rodney, Duto Design, H. Tallboys, Catherine Milne, Judith Mason, Greg Kellermeyer, Ryan Hinckley, Lori Kelly, 
Ed Ferrisquia, David Menares, Carl Severin, Ryan Ziegler, Jimmy Miller, Mihai Olteanu, Austin Heath, Kelly Rankin, Warwick Powell, Work of Wolves, J.F. Seymour Art, Stuart Finn, Miles Fender, Brian Weiss, Walter Morris, Brent Dahlgren, Janine Mackey, Richard Raposa, Justin Biancardi, Paul Hartigan, Matthew Stecky, Jacopo Lenzi, Diana Lalonde, Donald Freeman, Michael Pettit, Marianne Janek, Michelle Lynch, Stephen Riley, Tim Beeler, Henri Lipton, Kurt Gallagher, Laura Kiris, Stephen Shapiro, Federico Vicaro, Devin Sandberg, Jeannie Carey, Thomas Seedhall, Randall Rose, and David Kling. And thanks to all those who, you know, just joined on the $5 level. It really helps. It helps us be excited to do this, to have a... And I will now read all of those. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mark, do we have any calendars left? We have a lot of calendars left. Please buy a damn calendar. We'll keep that uh, same offer that we had going of uh, if you become a new $50 a year citizen, then we'll actually send you a coupon to get the calendar free. You still have to pay shipping. Hey, uh, next time we're going to be reading uh, parts of Hegel's Science of Logic, sections 1 through 129, the so-called Greater Logic, and the Encyclopedia Logic, or the Lesser Logic, sections 1 through 25. But you don't have to remember that because you should check out our new page, partiallyexaminedlife.com slash upcoming and that will always list what is going to be on the next episode and so you could read along thanks to everybody go to our Facebook page go hey uh, you should check out my new other podcast Nakedly Examined Music it's at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com go subscribe to it on iTunes leave a nice review for that hey leave if you enjoyed this leave a nice review for us on the Partially Examined Life thing you, if you haven't done that yet can you really feel love if you don't love us, you can't love anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and just to give an account of the weirdness that you're about to hear musically, in keeping with our Valentine's themes, we've got two short songs. One recorded Valentine's 1995, the other its sequel in 2002. So I guess this is, in real life, what I consider expressions of love to amount to. You can decide whether they are mature in the way that Eric Fromm would approve of. All right, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Supercharged darling She had such an awesome babe She certainly my fave Give me She is so enticing that she makes me cruel and ache She is so exciting, much more so than she can make Give Yeah. <laughs>
She's so perfect, she's the bestest, she's the turgic, she's my darling, she's the one, she's like heaven, set more fun, she's beautiful, marvelous, spectacular, fabulous, delicious, magical, lavish, lip of your swell, 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 that's cute, oh yeah, cute Happy camera time! 